Highwayman Dick Turpin is the quintessential English anti-hero, appearing from the shadows, a handkerchief drawn across his face, before a whimpering nobleman hears the fateful words, Stand and deliver, your money or your life. Roving the roads of Georgian England, robbing the rich, jumping fences on his faithful steed with two loaded pistols and the reins clamped between his teeth. Are the legends true? Was there really such a man? Or is the truth a much darker story? Join us for a bloodthirsty tale of murder and mayhem in the English countryside. This is Dick Turpin Part 2. Stand and Deliver. Seventeen thirty-five, Finchley Common, north of London. Skeletal trees claw out to each other to form a canopy over a rutted road. Light from the full moon spills through branches overhead. The only sound is the hoot of an owl and occasional screech of a fox out on the common. Then comes another sound, soft at first. Wheels rumbling across hard-packed dirt as a stagecoach approaches. The horse's snorting breath hangs in the cold air. It is the dead of night. The stagecoach should have arrived into London far earlier in the evening, but a thrown shoe on one of the four horses meant time wasted. The coachman scans the dark trees, then eyes his weapon, a crude blunderbuss, warily. The muzzle-loaded firearm is wildly inaccurate, but packed with partridge shot and ball bearings, it can shred a man at close range. As he considers the distance to the tree line, the coachman hopes tonight won't be the night he has to use it. He whispers to his horses. The thundering hooves pick up pace. Suddenly, out of the darkness ahead, there's a flash of light. The crack of a gunshot rolls through the trees. The driver grasps for his gun, squinting into the night. He can just about make out a shadow in the middle of the road. He pulls on the reins, slowing the coach, and with shaking hands, raises the blunderbuss. Another gunshot, next to his ear, freezes him to the spot. Stand and deliver, a voice bellows. The driver slowly turns his head to see a second figure mounted on an enormous jet-black mare. So close, the horse's breath snorts across the coach window, causing the passengers to recoil in terror. The highwayman holds a second pistol dead level at the coachman's eyes. He tilts his head to address the passengers in the coach. Your money or your life. As the man on the road in front covers the coachman, the highwayman elegantly swings down from his horse and steps into the moonlight. The two passengers inside gasp. A black bandana is pulled up over his nose and a dark tricorn hat obscures the rest of his face, leaving only his piercing blue eyes like sparkling stars in the night sky. It's clear this is the notorious Dick Turpin, scourge of the Great North Road, with his assistant, Thomas Roden. 
Turpin throws open the door. Inside, by the light of a dim lantern, a woman shrinks back. The man opposite her makes to strike Turpin, but thinks better of it when he looks down the barrel of the cocked pistol. Keeping the gun trained on the woman's husband, Turpin reaches out and takes her hand. He gallantly offers a small kiss, while swiftly pocketing her gold ring. Still holding her hand, he gestures for her to climb down from the coach. Turpin glances at his assistant, who now holds the coachman's blunderbuss and is unrolling a sack ready for the wealthy traveler's valuables. Flinging his cloak over his shoulder to reveal his fashionable waistcoat and frilled silk shirt, Turpin stuffs his pistol into the waistband of his breeches and flourishes an arm in the air. The dashing highwayman leads the woman in a romantic waltz. At first, she resists, looking over her shoulder at her husband in the coach. Soon, she forgets herself with the handsome outlaw, smiling and dancing in the moonlight. As she is led back to the coach and helped up into her seat, Turpin takes the sack from his assistant. With a bow to the gentleman, he reaches inside. There's 400 pounds in gold coins, a good haul for a few minutes' work. Turpin hands back 300 pounds to the man as compensation for what he says is the most enchanting dance he has had this year. With another bow and a flourish, he mounts his faithful black bess and gallops back north into the night. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The Essex gang's reign of terror has been brought to an end. With his friends rotting in gibbet irons, Richard Turpin teams up with the one other remaining gang member, Thomas Roden. Housebreaking is no longer an option for the duo, so instead they take to the dark highways and wild forests, making a name for themselves as highwaymen. There are a great many tales of Turpin robbing from the rich to feed the poor, of the courageous, gallant, and romantic gentleman robber astride his faithful black mare, galloping across the heaths by the pale moonlight. But how much do we really know about Turpin's career as a highwayman? Was he really the dashing figure of legend? Or has fiction again overtaken fact, masking the misdeeds of a cruel and ruthless villain? Finchley Common covers a sizable area of land north of London before its enclosure in the early 1800s, when it's consumed by the ever-expanding city. Sitting on the Great North Road, it has a long association with highwaymen. Until 1952, a great oak tree known as Turpin's Oak stood alongside the old road, 
where it is said a large number of pistol bullets had been lodged, apparently fired by superstitious travelers to ward off the spirit of Dick Turpin. It seems ghosts, like legends, still haunt the pages of history, casting long shadows that obscure the reality. James Sharp is a professor emeritus at the University of York and author of Dick Turpin, The Myth of the English Highwayman. Hampstead Heath or Hounslow Heath or whatever the other heaths, they too would be much wilder than they are today. I mean, they would be places where you know, travellers would go through, obviously, but you know, on occasions rather more dangerously than they would do today. Coming from South East London, the obvious place for me to connect with is Shooter's Hill, which you know, now is sort of basically urban sprawl, but was in the early Georgian period, you know, literally open land, heathland, and was much frequented by highwaymen. So these would be somewhat wilder places than they are today. Such is Turpin's pull and his association with these wild heaths that in 1998, the popular image of Dick Turpin astride Black Bess was carved into an enormous stump close to his oak on the sports field remnants of Finchley Common. But despite the legends and place names, there's no evidence to suggest Dick Turpin ever committed any crimes in the area. The real exploits of other highwaymen have come to be attributed to the more famous Turpin over time. Now Dick Turpin has come to represent all highwaymen of his age. One dashing figure who lent some panache to Turpin's legend and actually did stalk the road at Finchley Common is the flamboyant, fabulously mustached but now mostly forgotten, Captain James Hind. A fanatical royalist during the English Civil War, upon King Charles's execution, Hind swears he will target rebel parliamentarians, in particular the regicides who signed Charles's death warrant. Captain Hind becomes a local folk hero when he allegedly distributes his takings to poor royalist sympathizers in the area. One story tells of Hind visiting a tavern to find the landlord about to be turfed out for a non-payment of rent. Hind pays the bailiff and settles in for a pint on the house as a show of gratitude. He then creeps out back and climbs onto his horse. Pulling on his mask, he gallops after the greedy bailiff. Hind robs back his money before disappearing into the night. Incidents like these make their way into popular pamphlets, which cast him as a royalist Robin Hood, helping the downtrodden and poor. He robs the President of the High Court of Justice at the King's trial and the regicide Major General Thomas Harrison. He even tries to rob Oliver Cromwell himself, but the Lord Protector's bodyguards fight off the attack and capture Hines' accomplice. Hind is finally captured in 1652 and is executed. But he is not hanged like other highwaymen. Instead, he's tried for treason and suffers a traitor's death, hanged, drawn, and quartered with his head ending up on a spike at Worcester. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by your sink, 
Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. We will never know if Captain Hines' exploits with the landlord and the bailiff actually happened. But, regardless, the story forms the basis of the first episode of the 1979 television series Dick Turpin, a good demonstration of how we still attribute events to Turpin to suit a narrative. Another historical figure who lent a romantic air to the legend of Dick Turpin is the infamous Claude Duval. Claude Duval was the sort of prototype of the gentleman highwayman. He was meant to be dressed well. He was meant to be very attractive to women, which again is a recurring theme in highwayman stories. He came from Normandy in France. I mean, this is the 1650s. Parliament and then Cromwell is ruling in England. So a lot of royalists are living on the continent in France or in the Netherlands. And Apparently, he you know, befriended and became a servant of a number of English gentlemen who were in exile. Then in 1660, there comes the restoration of the Stuart monarchy. These guys go back to England. Duval comes with them. Uh, and he apparently, yeah, again, this is the classic story of the highwayman, falls into bad ways and turns to rubbing on the highway. A famous painting hanging in Manchester Art Gallery depicts Duval dancing in a clearing with a well-dressed young lady, while her traveling companions swoon in the coach behind her. Afterwards, he hands back most of the valuables lifted by his accomplices, taking only a hundred pounds as payment for performing the dance. It's not all fun and games, though. In the background of the painting stands a gallows, ready to receive him. Duval is hanged at Tyburn in 1670. It's probably the dashing rogues Hind and Duval who have most influenced our romantic view of the archetypal highwayman Gallant. Thanks to them, these roadside robbers were, even in their own time, referred to as gentlemen of the road. They were cast in the period after their passing as the model social bandits, fighting an unjust system on behalf of the common man robbing the wealthy and sharing their loot with the poor. As with any other outlaws, these myths that mask the dark truth reflect the social landscape of the era in which their legends emerge. What we have is lots of anecdotes, lots of stories of famous highwaymen. I mean, I think overwhelmingly, our image of highwaymen is formed by contemporary pamphlets, which are normally written when the highwayman is apprehended and executed and the story is newsworthy. The great age of highway robbery peaks from around the end of the Civil Wars in 1651 to the early 1700s. Many early highwaymen are disenfranchised royalist soldiers, pistol-owning horsemen well-trained in combat. They're out of work and looking to support themselves while slaking their thirst for adrenaline. The rising mobility of the population, free trade, the lack of any police force, and a disorganized government all contribute to the rise in crime. 
The huge volume of traffic on lonely roads between isolated villages makes highway robbery a lucrative and relatively low-risk career choice. Looking at the publications of the period, highway robbery is seen as sort of the barometer crime of criminality. It's like knife crime today. It's like mugging in the 1970s. You know, that this is the crime that uh, the news media and politicians and social pundits are really worried about. The roads radiating out from London are by far the richest pickings. Thieves will often lie in wait on heaths or woodland. Places such as Hampstead Heath, Finchley Common, Shooters Hill and Watham Forest all gain a notorious reputation for areas not to be traveled at night. A particular stretch of road running through Hyde Park between Kensington Palace and Whitehall is such a regular haunt of highwaymen that in 1690, King William III orders the route to be lit by 300 oil lamps, making it one of the first lit highways in England. Unfortunately, this doesn't stop the famous author and MP, Horace Walpole, being shot at by a highwayman. While the great age of the highwayman wanes through the century, it doesn't die out altogether. In 1774, even the Prime Minister himself is robbed at gunpoint. Highway robbery, we think of it in terms of, you know, Duval, if you like, or Neverson, or, you know, other people, McHeath, who are seen as being gentlemen, daring robbers, and so on. There is no separate offence of highway robbery. There's robbery, which is, you know, basically stealing with violence or with the threat of violence. So highway robbery can include Duval holding up a stagecoach. It could also include what these days we would call mugging. You know, so a sort of fairly low-class criminal can rob a woman on her way back from markets. And that, strictly speaking, could be classified as highway robbery if it occurs on a highway. So I think, as ever with criminal statistics, it's hard to tell how widespread the problem is. Obviously, a lot of people did think that highway robbery was prevalent, were very worried about it. The famous phrase, stand and deliver, is in common usage in newspapers and pamphlets of Georgian England. A trial of 1781 also mentions the phrase, your money or your life. Colorful characters that tend not to use violence, like Duval and Hind, with their dashing eccentricities and gentlemanly behavior, are the exception which has come to be accepted as truth. They're very much the exception. A lot of highwaymen claim gentility. Very, very few of them could actually be described as gentlemen. A number had served in the army, but normally as other ranks. So, you know, the gentleman thing does, does collapse very quickly. Public stagecoaches are a popular target for gangs, and things frequently turn violent if these demands are not met. The reality of highway robbery is dark, brutal, and bloody, carried out by the lowest, nastiest thieves who aren't above using any means at their disposal for the smallest reward. These are no gentleman robbers. The standard highwayman actually is somebody very like Turpin, somebody who's been apprenticed to a trade, who may or may not have completed his apprenticeship, but you know, drifts into criminality at some stage, either young or sort of an older stage. So I think very, very few of them could actually be described as gentlemen. The first report linking Richard Turpin and Thomas Roden to highway robbery 
is a story in July 1735. A man traveling by Southwark to Richmond is held up at Wandsworth Common by Turpin the Butcher and Rodin the Pewterer of the Gregory Gang, a.k.a. the Essex Gang. Four days later, the duo strike again at the same spot. This time, Turpin thinks he recognizes the man and makes to murder him. Fortunately, Rodin intervenes and stops Turpin, but the violence and threat is enough to force the Duke of Newcastle to bump up the reward to 100 pounds for any information. The back end of 1735 sees a spree of highway robberies so prolific that locals raise their own rewards to take down Turpin. His infamy is attested to in October, when the London Evening Post prints a story in which they're appalled that Dick Turpin has the audacity to ride through London at noon. There's at least one contemporary newspaper report from an anti-government newspaper, which, again, you know, the point I'd make is that the early 18th century is when you first get law and order concerns in something like the modern sense. You know, there is a sense, back to people being worried about highway robbery, and there's at least one comment in a, in a paper called Common Sense, which deplores the fact that the government has not caught Turpin. And yeah, the government is having a lot of problems at this time. So bunging law and order stuff at it is another thing to do. So I think the government would very much like to have got hold of Turpin because he is notorious. And certainly in that 1735 period, he has been constantly featuring in newspaper reports. And so if the government could catch Turpin, it would be a big feather in its cap. While Turpin enjoys his rising notoriety, it's all proving too much for Thomas Roden. At the end of the year, he splits, heading to Gloucester to take up his old profession of counterfeiting. It's not long before he's arrested, recognized as the violent robber that he is, and sent back south to stand trial. The penultimate member of the Essex gang is due to hang, but just manages to swerve the noose when his sentence is amended to transportation to the American colonies. Now, of the original Essex gang, only Dick Turpin remains at large. But just at the height of his growing celebrity, he vanishes. Turpin seems to disappear in the summer or autumn of 1735. There were certainly rumours at the time, which uh, historians, I think, generally accept, that he went to the Netherlands. Now, whether he was robbing over there, I don't know. But the idea is that by the summer of 1735, he was a well-known figure, there was money on his head, and he may have just felt that England was a bit too hot for him. So he went to the Netherlands, and he was back in England in early 1737. So he dips out of history for a couple of years, or 18 months, if you like. What we do know is that he turns back up in Puckeridge, Hertfordshire, when Turpin meets his wife, her maid, and a friend at an inn in February 1737. It's very unclear what happens there, but you know, you're not quite certain why that meeting is taking place. You know, he may have you know, just wanted to see his wife. It had been a long time. By now, Turpin may have hoped the authorities had forgotten him. He couldn't be more wrong. Unknown to the group, their correspondence has been intercepted. 
Now an ambush lies in wait. As the four drink at the inn, the trap is sprung. But somehow, only Turpin's three confederates are arrested. His wife and a couple of other people are actually imprisoned and await trial for aiding and abetting a, ro a robbery. So it does look as though some sort of trap is being set for him in that, or certainly somebody appears to be informing on him. But that's a very, very opaque incident. Turpin has slipped the net once again, escaping 40 miles north to Cambridge. His wife and friends are eventually released without charge, and the hunt for the notorious outlaw continues. March 1737. The main road between London and Cambridge is well-traveled, but not at this time of night. Now, on the outskirts of Chingford in Essex, the only sound is the breeze rustling the dark bushes and the occasional screech of a nocturnal animal in the woods. Gradually, the soft kick of a horse's hooves on gravel rolls along the road as a lone man rides slowly in the direction of the town. It's been a long day, and he's looking for a hot meal and a place to lay his head. Clouds roll away, bathing the traveler in silver moonlight. His white powdered wig is fashionable and well-made. His polished riding boots glimmer, and his flashy waistcoat contrasts with his dark, well-tailored frock coat. Tired, alone, and clearly wealthy, an easy target for the highwayman Dick Turpin, waiting in the shadows of a huge oak. The spot is well chosen. He's used it to rob countless lone travelers before. In the trees, with the light of the moon behind him, he knows he is all but invisible. As the man sways in his saddle with the movement of his horse, Turpin cocks his pistol. He pulls up his bandana, waits a moment longer, then whispers to his horse, patting her neck. The lone traveler tugs on his reins as he sees the highwayman emerge from the dark bushes ahead. But it's too late. He has nowhere to run to. Initially startled, the man quickly gathers his wits. Rather than try to flee, he continues to calmly ride up to the dark shape silhouetted in the moonlight. Turpin bellows for him to halt, leveling his pistol. The man obliges. As the light catches on the barrel of the gun, the rider cocks his head on one side, regarding Turpin with amusement. Turpin shouts for the man to hand over his valuables, but the rider doesn't move. Turpin is furious. He waves the gun one last time, preparing to put a bullet into the traveler. Suddenly, the stranger breaks into a fit of laughter. Dog eat dog, he says. Come, brother Turpin. If you don't know me, I know you. I'll be glad of your company. According to the stories reprinted in the Newgate Calendar, the true crime gazette of the 1800s, the lone traveler is Matthew King, sometimes referred to as Tom King. King is a successful and experienced highwayman in his own right, 
and knows of Turpin by reputation. He's looking for a partner, and Turpin fits the bill. You could make out a case for saying that you know, Turpin would disappear when things were getting difficult or dangerous. He seemed to prefer working with another accomplice, you know, so he's not taking too many risks. The two become friends and colleagues in a mutually beneficial partnership. Highway robbery is far easier with two. The partnership will be short-lived. The duo haunt Epping Forest, carrying out a month-long crime spree until the end of April, when they steal a well-known racing horse. It's a fateful mistake and will prove to be the undoing of both of the highwaymen. The steed's owner reports the theft to the landlord at the nearby Green Man Inn at Leightonstone. The landlord, in turn, uses his various contacts to track the horse to Whitechapel, London. A horse was stolen called White Stockings, because it had you know, white stockings on it. And a alehouse keeper, a pub keeper, called Richard Bayes is involved in this. He's asked about the theft, because obviously your pub keepers, you know, generally speaking, know about things. And he reports that such a horse has been seen somewhere in a pub in London, I think the Red Lion Inn in London. And he collects a sort of posse and goes down to see what can be done, because yeah, presumably there'll be rewards going around. And they come across Matthew King's brother in the pub, who they start questioning, and he stonewalls initially. Then Matthew himself turns up on a horse in the road. The posse seizes King, demanding to know where his accomplice is. Turpin, who isn't far away, hears the commotion and comes riding into the yard to see his associate disarmed and held firm. Turpin runs into the fray, and obviously there are different stories about what happens, but the one that you know, preserves the narrative, if you like, is that Turpin accidentally shoots King. The pistol shot echoes around the stable yard. Astride a jittery horse and confronted by a mob, either Turpin's aim is off, or seeing the writing on the wall, perhaps he makes a cold and calculated decision. Dead men tell no tales, as the saying goes. Stony-faced, he watches as Matthew King slumps to the cobblestones, clutching his chest, blood streaming between his fingers. With one last glance at the mob, Turpin spurs his horse back through the archway and onto the high street, galloping away. King will die several days later, denouncing Turpin as a coward, though his slippery accomplice did probably save him from the gallows. It's the 4th of May, 1737, Epping Forest. Dick Turpin rides slowly up the middle of the road towards the Robin Hood Inn, glancing behind him at every sound. Since lying low with sympathizers for a couple of days, he's decided to return to familiar territory here in the open countryside. Turpin has been on the road a long time. Normally, he'd consider slaking his thirst at the inn, but since the incident at Whitechapel, he's worried he'll be recognized. Pushing branches aside, he rides into the trees opposite the inn, following an invisible path he committed to memory long ago. 
Behind him, a lone figure emerges from the stable yard of the Robin Hood Inn. The figure follows at a distance, silently stalking him through the trees. Thomas Morris is a servant of the keeper of Epping Forest. He knows Turpin likes to work the rich pickings nearby and has been keeping a careful eye out. Tonight, it's paid off as he quickly follows the highwayman deeper into the forest. He doesn't need a mob to take Turpin down. He knows these woods like the back of his hand. He reasons that with his two loaded pistols, he can easily surprise and outgun the dangerous highwayman. Besides, any fears he has are outweighed by the thought of the reward money and how much better it'll be if he doesn't have to split it. The darkness closes in quickly. Morris follows the sounds of Turpin's horse through the trees, carefully picking his way so as not to alert his prey. Turpin pauses as he hears a noise in the woods behind him. He climbs down from his horse, holding her still, eyes peeled as he peers into the shadows. Nothing moves. He leads the horse into a small clearing and ties her reins to a branch beside a rocky outcrop. Turpin pauses again to scan the trees, then sweeps a branch aside to duck into a low cave. Carefully moving a wooden crate stacked with bottles of wine, cheeses, and other food, he moves to the back of the cave. He lights a lantern, turning the light down low then grabs a carbine, a short muzzled rifle. He checks it's loaded, then quickly crawls back outside, backing into the brambles at the edge of the clearing. He doesn't have to wait long. Turpin's eyes are used to the darkness. He soon sees a shadow detach itself from the bushes along the path and creep towards the lit cave. Turpin recognizes the man as Thomas Morris, and from the look of the cocked pistol in each hand, he hasn't come for a chat. Turpin stands, carbine held low at his side, hollering, Who goes there? Morris turns, initial shock turning into exhilaration. With the reward money in mind and two loaded pistols in hand, he acts. He quickly brings a pistol up, squeezing the trigger, followed rapidly by the second. Turpin grins. By the time Morris's second bullet leaves its barrel, he is shouldering his carbine and squeezing the trigger. He knows the clearing is at least 30 yards wide. Under pressure, at night, it would take an expert marksman to use those pistols effectively. And an expert marksman Morris is not. The keeper brought the wrong gun to the fight, and it'll cost him dearly. As Turpin's carbine cracks, Morris drops to the ground. The latest victim of the ruthless highwayman. When Morris's body is found, Turpin's long gone. 
The cave overlooking the London to Cambridge Road, which has served him so well during his career as a highwayman, has been cleared out, leaving no evidence. A few days later, a 200-pound reward is placed on Turpin's head. Now, it's very, very difficult converting 18th century values into modern ones, but a skilled worker would be doing well to earn 20 to 25 pounds a year. So it's, you know, getting on for 10 times a skilled worker's salary, if you want to look at it in those terms. It's a lot easier to lose one's identity in this period. You know, there's no bank accounts in the modern sense, no social security numbers, no driving licenses. You, know, you can just um, disappear and pop up at the other end of the country or go to the Netherlands. And it's very, very difficult for anybody in authority to track you down. So in the summer of 1737, with a 200 pound reward on his head, wanted for murder, assault, housebreaking, highway robbery, and a dozen other crimes, Dick Turpin once again disappears from history. Next time on Real Outlaws. The age of the highwayman is drawing to a close and the road is running out for its most famous son. Dick Turpin re-emerges, living a secret life under a false identity. But he'll soon discover that the past has a habit of catching up with you. He's been lucky so far, but how much longer will that luck hold out? A momentary lapse in judgment could cost him his life. That's next time on Real Outlaws. If you're enjoying Noiser podcasts and would like to hear them without adverts, join Noiser Plus today. As well as ad-free listening to Noiser originals, including Real Outlaws, Real Dictators, Short History Of, and History Daily, You'll get bonus content and early access to new episodes. Start your free trial today with Noiser Plus.